0: Okay, you ready?
1: Yep. All right, here we go. <clears throat> we, the people of color, gather together at this multinational People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit to begin to build a national and international movement of all peoples of color to fight the destruction and taking of our lands and communities, do hereby reestablish our spiritual interdependence to the sacredness of our Mother Earth to respect and celebrate each of our culture's languages and beliefs about the natural world and our roles in healing ourselves, to ensure environmental justice, to promote economic alternatives which would contribute to the development of environmentally safe livelihoods, and to secure our political, economic, and cultural liberation that has been denied for over 500 years of colonization and oppression, resulting in the poisoning of our communities, in land, and the genocide of our peoples, do affirm and adopt these principles of environmental justice.
0: This is episode four, Mothering the Movement.
1: After nearly 10 years of fighting, Hazel Johnson learned she wasn't fighting alone.
0: By the early 90s, organizations like People for Community Recovery had sprung up all over the country. People were fighting to address the environmental harms in their space, just like Hazel was in Uncle Gardens. And it was
1: clear that this organizing work was not and could not happen in isolation. A movement was
0: emerging. And the leaders of that movement needed to know each other.
2: In October of 1991, various activists came together in Washington, D.C. for the First People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit.
3: It's time to build an authentic coalition that represents the people affected—white, black, urban, rural, poor, working class—for they may dump toxic waste on the poor side of town today, but as sure as the wind blows. Yeah. Yeah. That's why that can be no elite environmental movement. It must be universal.
1: Yep, that's Jesse Jackson. It ain't a party of Jesse
0: out there. All right, back to Teresa Cordova, a professor who's also been deeply involved in grassroots EJ work, telling us about the convening.
2: What was most important, I think, about that gathering, there were a number of principles, 17 principles that came out of the gathering. What impressed me most, though, is the debate around the principles, because this
4: forced all groups to broaden their thinking. So, for example, Native American, Mexican American, they had to consider and wrap their heads around the role of slavery in producing environmental injustice. And for African Americans, we had to understand that Native Americans are a sovereign people with treaty arrangement with this government. And so that that their role and rights are often defined by those treaty rights. And then we had international folks from South America. We had some people from the Marshall Islands at at this conference. So, You know, we had to think about and talk about the role of colonialism and neocolonialism in terms of impacting people's health. So it required everybody to sort of leave their local struggle, whether it's at a local steel plant or a community organization, and think broadly and talk about uh, the world.
0: What you heard at the top of this episode was the preamble to these principles, the principles that we already listed in episode one as the de facto definition of what environmental justice is. But of course, those principles didn't just appear out of thin air. They came from this room of people from all over the world, creating this language for their own work, but also for the generations to come. And they were successful
1: in that mission. The principles that came out of this conference became a rubric for future generations of environmental justice work that continues on till today.
0: The convening also modeled how the environmental justice movement can work. The way that the organizers in that room in 1991 worked together, connected their particular space to global dynamics and struggle, is the way that the environmental justice movement has located its power in the 30 years since. And in this room of leaders, Hazel's leadership was undeniable. This
4: is a dream. I told Ben a year ago that I would like to see some people of color. I've been fighting the environment for nine years on a daily basis.
2: Mostly everywhere I went,
4: I was the only black among three or four, 500 whites speaking on the environment. And I'm happy to see so many of my sisters and brothers are here today to fight for this struggle. I've seen her in that setting talk with Mexican Americans, talk with Puerto Ricans, talk with indigenous people. I've seen her in the process of organizing. You know, she was on the steering committee for that. She was a featured speaker. She played a very prominent role from the dais as a leader of this movement. And, and that was critical.
0: Hazel had so much to give to this convening. But you can hear from her speech at the front of the room how much convening with her people gave back to her.
1: Hazel left this convening with more than just 17 principles and a new sense of community with her contemporaries. She left with a new position, a new honorary distinction, a new moniker, a new name. Mother of the environmental justice movement.
2: Teresa. I was there, actually, in that room when this happened. It was when they brought up all these women who might all have been like the co-founders, right? And they all, in sort of Black woman tradition, uh, they all kind of dressed up and they all wore hats. All the women leaders of the movement. I remember the moment of these women parading up there. And I remember how beautiful it was and inspiring and all of that. It was not such a big event that I remember, you know, we're going to we're going to do this big celebration and we're going to name her the mother of environmental justice. There was I don't remember there, there being such a moment as she was coming up. There was a reference made to her as such. It wasn't like there had been a, a meeting of all the activists. and Everybody decided they were going to give her this name. Right. But I think if there was one person that everybody had said we all look up to and respect as our elder, it would have been Hazel. Now, mind you, most of these women at this point are gonna be probably in their 40s and 50s, but Hazel would have been probably a generation older than the youngest of these activists. He She could literally be their mother.
0: This honorific, the mother of the environmental justice movement, is what we saw that piqued our curiosity about who Hazel was. It signaled a great importance, a significance, but what does it really mean to be a mother of a movement?
5: I'm a mom. I have two daughters, They're adults now.
0: That's scientist and historian, Sylvia Hood Washington.
5: So when you, you talk about motherhood, right? You could be a mother in many ways. But I'm gonna take this from natural birth. So when you think of a mother, you think about this person who in a process of creation, co-creation, and protecting and sustaining life. And so with Hazel, that's an appropriate title because she brought so many people into awareness. She nurtured them. She developed their understanding of what it was to suffer from environmental disparities. And she gave birth to the foundational frameworks of other environmental justice struggles in the United States and specifically in Illinois. She will be the mother of environmental justice movement Because she gave voice and continue to give voice to inequitable responses to environmental health.
4: The reality of what it means just to be a human being on the planet and to understand what your goal in life is, which is to make sure your children and grandchildren flourish and continue and move in the same direction that you're trying to move. I think that that sort of mother wit is why people called her. I mean, there are other women that were leaders at this time period, but I think the reason she got that title is because she basically demonstrated in a concrete, real way on a day-to-day basis, that basic, solid, hardcore mother wit that Black women historically have demonstrated.
1: So this unofficial title brings us to a point of nuance or, or even a, a contradiction.
0: Oh, does this mean it's time for our contradiction, Bell?
1: It is. Yes! So
0: on the one hand, this
1: moniker really situates Hazel's historical significance and ensures that her legacy will not be forgotten. And that's especially important because we're talking about a Black woman, a Black woman who migrated from the South, a Black woman who migrated from the South and ended up in public housing, A person existing in many intersections that are often marginalized, undervalued, and erased. But on the other hand, and this is true with most movements, the idea of highlighting a single figure may seem to be in conflict with the philosophy of collective power that makes these movements possible.
0: And so that's why it's super important to think about what does this word mother actually mean? Because it's very easy for people to create their own meanings for that word. We got into the nitty gritty of this with Teresa.
2: I think the connotation of mother is founder. She gave birth to it, and she was one of many who gave birth to it. No one of these women are ever going to call themselves the mother, right? But yet they were all, you know, primary leaders, right, in this force.
1: I'm almost curious if, like, a shift in the article of the sentence, how that reconciles the tension between. The mother and a mother of the modern environmental justice movement, as I hear you describing it, and you use like the the traditions of Black women. I, I I think to the Black you you see even name like the regalia and like the hats. Like I think of the Black church, and often there are mothers of the church. There's usually more than one. They're not expected to be like the founder or the person that put the cornerstone down on the building. Uh, but it's it's how they show up in this like you know collective nurturing and this presence that builds up and you know is almost. To to use the metaphor like gardening up humanity. Actually, if I can comment
2: on that, that's actually really helpful to me too. That feels like that really honors her
1: because I think people did
2: look up to her in that way. She did. She was sort of an an, an elder in that way, right? Well, I, I can't. I can't say it better than you just said it.
1: So I appreciate Teresa's affirmation there, not only because I'm a sucker for validation, who isn't, you know, but also because I think in that conversation we're moving towards reconciling this contradiction of uh, a central figure versus this ethic of nurturing, of care, of gardening up humanity that we see Hazel embodying. And I think it highlights the importance of motherhood in shaping our world and shaping our communities, not just in the like, biological sense or in the household, but mothering is our highest ideal of care and love. Nothing goes beyond a air quote, mother's love. And I think that's something we all need to strive for, not just in our interpersonal relationships, But how our political structures are organized, how our economy is governed, should be filtered through this ethic of love.
0: Yeah. What if we built our social structures around this idea of mother wit, of how we take care of the people we love? What would that make possible? Now, of course, I mean, if you're listening, you know us by now. This idea comes with its own set of contradictions. you
1: reconcile one contradiction, you got another one coming.
0: Ring the bell. Because when we talk about mothering, there is typically a gender position assigned to that role, right? Those responsibilities, both in a traditional family model, but also within the environmental justice movement, have sat on the shoulders of women. And so we have to be careful and conscious because in
1: attempts to to celebrate this beautiful, sacred practice of nurturing and care, we can actually be replicating systems of marginalization and exploitation of physical and emotional labor.
0: Yeah, the idea that care and love and fighting for your children is, quote, women's work abdicates that responsibility from all of us and erases all of the ways that people across the gender spectrum have always been doing this type of care work. And that assumption is not neutral, right?
1: The idea of women being the caretakers comes from exclusion from the formal economy.
0: Juliana Pino speaks to some of these contradictions and also the history of how these roles were assigned and some of the implications on how we even see environmental justice work now.
6: In raising the complexity here around mothering and womanhood and especially the environmental justice movement, it is important to acknowledge just by the numbers, that women, predominantly women of color, are the anchors of the EJ movement. I think something over half of all self-identifying EJ orgs are led by women. Significant early leadership of the movement. You have Karen Schroeder and Love Canal. You have Hazel Johnson. You have Margie Richard and Norco. That's um, also nicknamed Cancer Alley. There is this origin of the EJ movement in everyday experiences and that women, because they're more likely to be poor and because they're more likely to be in charge of the household historically have been the first to reach awareness of environmental injustices in their daily lives and the first to start to organize around them, um, seeing the impacts for themselves and their children. And so there is a way that because socialization has put women in roles of care, that women then are the route in a sort of historical sense to the origins of the movement, to organizing around the movement. And in many ways, that sort of household resistance combined with data and transparency efforts coming from cis men led to some of the the earliest reports on the patterns of EJ injustices. So that's true. That's very much true. Now, as a queer person who recognizes that gender is a social construct and that people come to their identities around gender partly out of socialization and resistance to socialization, in my mind, I, I think about this as more about who holds the roles of care in community rather than just about somebody's gender, you know? And so you also see spaces of resistance, you know, around transness and environmental justice. You see, especially, you know, you see some street-based resistance to Um, Folks who would not identify as women, but who socially have assumed the roles of care and because of that are experiencing environmental harm in a particular way that leads itself to, to organizing, but I don't think is only about Womanness, but it is about care. I also think it's important to recognize, especially in Black communities, that severe levels of incarceration have also taken young boys and men out of community roles that they might otherwise be electing to play out of spaces of care and into the hands of the state. I think that's also about disrupting the ability of communities to organize. It's about the threats that people along the gender spectrum who are Black present to white supremacy. Again, the most dangerous thing is community. And so to, to destabilize communities and to take young men and boys, um, but also young women and young people across the, the gender spectrum out of community to prevent their ability to transmit care and build where they're from. It is a way to sort of prevent movements from formating, is a way to, to enact violence upon people. Prisons are important parts of environmental racism. It's really important to understand that definitely has to do with this, especially here.
0: All right, we got to zoom out for a second because Juliana just said something super important. Not only did she
1: unpack and bring the necessary complexity to how we talk about gender and this ethic of mothering that we hope to promote, but she also says something really significant that we can't move past. We need to understand prisons and mass incarceration not just as forms of bigotry or political disenfranchisement, but also as forms of environmental racism.
0: And the impact of that racism takes many forms. Juliana talked about the destabilization in people's communities who's taken out, what they would otherwise be able to contribute, but this harm also looks like many other things. A couple examples of that that are specific to Illinois and the Midwest. So according to Truthout, at least 23 jails have either been proposed or constructed on toxic and contaminated lands just since 2020 across the Midwest. Also, prisons and jails that are already standing are sites of environmental racism. In Illinois, over the last year, the water in at least 12 state prisons has tested positive for Legionnaires' disease, a potentially fatal type of pneumonia. In the facilities that have tested positive, there are more than 9,000 people living exposed to this potentially life-threatening illness.
1: And yeah, so the COVID-19 pandemic crystallized a reality that's been true for generations, that prisons and jails aren't just sites of torture and separation, but also sites of concentrated illness and disease that decimates the health and is death-making for the people experiencing incarceration. But the harms of incarceration are not just confined behind those walls. They continue to impact our community as folks return home, as folks stay connected through visits, and through the circulation of staff and guards that come in and out of the facilities. So Juliana makes a really clear statement that prisons are environmental racism.
0: And so to do environmental justice work, we need to be fighting to dismantle policing and incarceration. And to fight the harms of policing and incarceration, we need to understand the way that environmental racism is built into those systems. All right, let's zoom back in to Juliana.
6: I also think there is room in the movement for other kinds of leadership. It is rife with power struggles, though, in the way that you also see that in the civil rights movement writ large and in other movements like labor organizing. You still see the same dynamic where people, you know, especially cis men, are not necessarily coming to it always from the same place of experience, but do tend to get more resources, for example, or do tend to take the mic <laughs> and do tend to um, get legibly understood as, as leaders in a way that women residents still have to fight for that. Queer and trans people still have to fight for that, even like legibility in the movement at all.
0: That observation Juliana makes is one, of course, that you and I have seen in our years as organizers, both on and off mic. And it's something that we keep in mind also in our role as the makers of this show, you know?
1: We are two cishead men who fundraise to be on mic to tell this story. And so it is our responsibility to do so while accounting for this inequity of power and legibility that Juliana is naming.
0: Yeah, we need everyone to participate, but we need everyone to participate with intention and an understanding of the power dynamics they bring to the table. All right, so we we pulled out these contradictions. We went super deep, but I think the main point that we're hearing is actually really straightforward.
1: That this mothering ethic that we're talking about is not some mystical biological innate genius. It's about a commitment to love to the full extent of your power.
0: Linda Ray Murray says this super clearly in a way that only someone who's been a mother and a grandmother can.
4: I may get kicked out of the mother and grandmother union for this. I don't know. So I think we have to step back from our romanticized notions of mother. What that means? So those of us who, who are mothers and grandmothers know. You know, you start off, you don't know what the hell you're doing. What happens is, you know that you love that child. It's not that you know everything, because unfortunately, now don't don't tell this to my grandkids. Unfortunately, we're we're sometimes even wrong. The point is. That you love the children, the grandchildren, the nieces and nephews, and you are trying to do everything within your power to protect them, even though you know, as a Black woman, you don't have a lot of power.
1: Hazel had limited access to structural power, but one of her movement children became the most powerful person in the world.
0: Their relationship, like so many of the other connections that Hazel built with young people, started in an organizing meeting.
1: Sheryl explains how Barack Obama entered the gardens.
0: And see, my mother was
7: a confirmed Catholic. So we used to have a Catholic church out here called Our Lady of the Gardens. We didn't have a 501c3, so the church was our fiscal agent to allow us to get funding. And that's where she met Obama, because she was with the Catholic Church.
8: He was hired by the Developing Communities Project.
1: That's Bob Ginsberg, longtime organizer in the Calumet region, who was very active during this time.
8: He was a young guy who was just with mostly older women who didn't necessarily relate to him or trust him. It takes a long time for you know, a young man to sort of get older women to sort of appreciate it, you know, to trust him. And he was only there a few years and before he went off to law school. I think it had a bigger impact on Obama than it did on Hazel.
7: Now, when I was wor- working with him, I never had no idea. I know he was an ambitious young man. He was nice, polite. You know, I know he was wanted to go beyond what he was already, but I had no idea that he would go that far. And I'm very proud of him. My mother had a lot of aspirations for that man. She really, when my mother called you her son, that's the highest regards that you could get from her. Is when she called you her son or daughter. I was in college at that particular time. When I come home, I would see him sitting at the kitchen table, him and my mother strategizing on what's going on in the community, particularly around CHA, and their lack of response of doing maintenance in all jail. What I remember is when he walked to my mother's house, and my mother met him outside, and I was just listening And I remember him saying, Ms. Johnson, I got good news or bad news for you? He said, which one you want to hear? She said, well, give me the bad news. And he told her that he was leaving DCP. And she was like, oh, no, why are you leaving? And then he said, the good news that I got accepted to Harvard Law School because he wanted to become a lawyer to come back and represent groups like my mother who's trying to fight for their community. And they walked back to his car and he left. I think he spent like 20 minutes with my mother. So
0: Obama leaves in 88 to go to Harvard Law School. And then, of course, to make a long story very short, 2008 becomes elected president. So that's about 20 years between when he leaves the gardens and when he steps into the Oval Office. But Hazel actually had a much quicker track to the Oval Office than Obama did. By 91, when the convening we talked about at the top of this episode happened, She'd already encountered President Reagan and Bush and been recognized for her work in various ways, but it wasn't until after that summit, after she became this mother of environmental justice, that she and the rest of the EJ movement were able to push the White House to make any substantive steps toward addressing environmental racism. One of the most formal commitments that the EJ movement pushed the White House to was Executive Order 12898. Federal Actions to Address Environmental Justice in Minority and Low-Income Populations. Signed by Bill Clinton on February 16th, 1994.
2: Teresa. So the Clinton executive order, All right? There were a couple of folks who were connected to the movement, Bob Bullard being one and Ben Chavis, of course, being the other. They were on Clinton's transition team. But there were a slew of these networks and EJ activists. They really pushed Bob and Ben to push from the inside, while they push from the outside to get this Clinton executive order. So that meant that all these other agencies within the government, federal government, would have to look at all of their work through an environmental justice lens.
1: If you Google Hazel Johnson, one of the first images that's going to come up is actually a really famous photo of this executive order signing, and you see how how central and prominent she is in that tableau. You see her and everyone else smiling in the picture, but she and the movement was clear that a signature on a piece of paper or a day of ceremony would not in and it of itself adequately repair the harm.
4: Usually there's a little picture in the environmental justice histories where Clinton is signing that uh, executive order. So she, has, she was there, she's in the picture, but she understood it was a minor victory. And she wasn't like all awed by the fact that she's in the Oval Office. No, she's saying like, no, this is how far we've come now. Now what can we use out of this process to get us further along the road?
0: So Dr. Murray's saying that Hazel's skepticism was rooted in her understanding of the limits of this political tool, the executive order. But for other EJ organizers, their skepticism was also rooted in who was signing the order. For Orrin Williams, who had the option to be in the photo, Bill Clinton and neoliberalism was something to be skeptical, if not outright distrustful of.
9: You know, they were trying to figure out who was going to be in the picture with Bill Clinton signing. Don't you want to do it? And I'm like, nope. And people are like, oh, this is a great opportunity. It's like, no, I'm not feeling, dude. And no, I don't want to be in a picture and something that lives in the perpetuity and something that somebody can interpret as me trusting Bill Clinton and like, oh, my God. You know, like, nah, we're never feeling it.
4: Again, I I think she stood In the tradition of black mothers, she was very clear that the executive order was a small, tiny, tiny step. And if you didn't keep your eye on those folks, it would go backwards. It wouldn't even be useful. I think the contribution of the executive order, you know, again, it's it's not to take away from forcing the president of the United States to write uh, an executive order. That that took a lot of organizing, but no one thought that that was anywhere close to a solution. I think it, it allowed a number of technocrats to begin to say, well, maybe we should be concerned about environmental justice. But again, I don't think that came from the executive order. I really think that came from the movement, but it helped codify it because people can sort of touch it and say, oh, at this point, every government agency had to explain impact on environmental justice. So I don't want to say it was worthless, but it didn't accomplish what we needed it to
0: accomplish. Here's Creative Cabinet member Juliana Pino.
6: When our friends, the government, as in the federal government, are involved in the framing, then you have to start asking some questions. Does it eclipse the completely irresponsible, intentional ways that the government contributed to environmental racism? Yes. I also think that we should be really clear about why the government uses environmental justice and not environmental racism. And that's because there was a deep and early investment in making this about income and not about race. It became clear that poverty did have something to do with it, but the way that people were targeted, in particular, had to do with race. And the government was very much invested in making this a race-neutral idea. So they did agree. Environmental justice is something that we care about. Now we're going to issue an important success of Hazels and getting Executive Order twelve eight nine eight passed. But for years, staff at the Environmental Protection Agency, environmental entities for at large at states wanted to take the focus away from the fact that this was about race. Without addressing the underpinnings of white supremacy, you're never going to get environmental justice. Without understanding that is about environmental racism, you're never going to get to the solutions that people actually wanted in community.
0: So in this executive order, like we just heard, was the mandate that every government agency, when they make decisions, take environmental justice into account. This executive order also led to the creation of a few government structures to help make that happen. One of the most prominent was the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council, or NEJAC, which was built to provide independent advice and recommendations to the EPA around new policies and decisions. Hazel was a member. Professor David Pello, a scholar of environmental justice who worked with PCR at the time, talks about the structure, pros, and cons of this new formation.
3: The knee jack, you know, had over the years come under criticism. I think primarily, you know, under the radar. Not a lot of people spoke out about it, you know, in, in the media, but you know, it was this entity that says, hey, look, we need representation from EJ communities advising the White House, advising the federal government on various policies. And I, th- I think that sounds great. That makes all the sense in the world, and in a very real way, represents a real success but one of the things that we saw with NEJAC in particular but with a lot of other entities like that was you yeah, had groups like pcr and other groups all around the country who are so under-resourced not just in terms of you know funding but in terms of people like damn we got like two or three staff members trying to keep an organization afloat how are we going to keep this organization afloat if one third of us is spending like at least it feels like a half-time job flying back and forth to DC and doing all these meetings. And basically that felt like a form of extraction as well. And there were many folks who told me in many organizations that, damn, it was hard to, you know, meet the payroll or meet the mission of our organization when one or more of our staffers was busy doing all this work in DC, when we had problems back in Detroit or Atlanta, or South Central, or, or Chicago. And there was a similar dynamic with the, the Common Sense Initiative that the U.S. EPA put together.
9: You made me think about Hazel and Cheryl asking me to participate in uh, what are they call the Common Sense Initiative, which was a program that Clinton Gore came up with, uh, with different industrial sectors. There was environmental organizations, mainstream environmental organizations, there were corporations, and then there was the environmental justice representative. One incident in particular stands out. Uh, there was this guy who was a muckety muck in the big steel, like U.S. Steel, right? And one day he was transformed into the Incredible Hulk when he thought that carbon-based manufacturing was going to be threatened. He ripped off his glasses, he transformed himself, you know, and it says we're, we're going to do this using fossil fuel regardless. So, and also I learned a lot about government's role kind of in ensuring the safety and well-being of corporations and not communities.
3: We were trying to make, I think it was six different major industry sectors, cheaper, smarter, and cleaner. You know? And I was like, smarter, cheaper, cleaner. Where's equity? Where's justice in there? But all I knew was, damn, I'm falling behind on the work I'm supposed to be doing for PCR because I'm doing all these damn meetings in D.C. And what sort of credit is PCR given for that at the end of the day? It was was not clear. And it was also not clear that it was, again, a good investment of our time and energy when ultimately it was frankly a, a neoliberal strategy to keep industry you know, doing what it was doing, but to to put lipstick on a pig, to change really to change the optics and not transform what was happening in iron, auto, steel, electronics, printing, you name it. PCR and other organizations in the grassroots, I think, were being used by the EPA to say, "Hey, look, we're consulting with these folks. We're getting input from from these communities." And on another level, I you know, I've, and I've talked to other folks who who worked at, at PCR at the time. There was always this unsettling question of democratic and fair representation, and this is something I'll put on everybody, not just the U.S. EPA, but on me, on PCR and any grassroots groups, which was like, wait, little old me, one dude from the city of Chicago representing all I don't know, environmental justice activists and communities of color in the city of Chicago. Who put me in charge? Nobody elected me. And so that, that, that's a messy process that, that I always found curious, if not troublesome.
0: Between Oren Williams and David's respective experiences participating, I feel like we get a pretty good sense of what those knee-jack or common sense meetings were like. The burden of participation in these meetings is clear even in looking in the PCR archives. At the Chicago Public Library, Woodson Branch, where the PCR archives are held, of the roughly four dozen archival portfolio boxes, like a third of them are paperwork that has to do with knee jack. In this whole history we're telling, all of the fights, all of the struggles, all of the communication, the technocratic burden of participating with the state takes up such a disproportionate amount of room. So we're at a
1: really significant moment in Hazel... Cheryl, PCR, and really the environmental justice movement story.
0: One might say, perhaps, a contradiction?
1: This is a big contradiction, and I think this is a, a contradiction that has really existed in all iterations of Black struggle, and that's the relationship to the powerful institutions that have the resources to address harm and to create new policy, to create new structure, and to make new investments. Those same institutions are collaborating and benefiting from the degradation, from the oppression, from the harm. And so in many ways, it can be named the EPA itself came out of social justice struggles, came out of the civil rights movement, which also held up the same tension of how do we participate and transform the structures that impact our lives without obscuring government or other institutions role in the violence and their need for accountability? while also maintaining a spirit of resistance that can easily be co-opted, reduced, or quelled by the demands and requirements of participation.
0: Yeah, I think Pelo really names that perfectly, of like, what was the work that didn't happen because members of PCR had to spend all their time flying back and forth to D.C. to do unpaid work, mind you. It wasn't like they were getting compensated for that time and labor. And at its core, what we're hearing is that the recognition and naming by the federal government of the concept of environmental justice became a tool to validate and perpetuate environmental injustice. So
1: to be sitting down with a steel magnate in a space that's supposed to be addressing pollution and what they are bringing is a commitment to maintaining, if not expanding, the use of fossil fuels.
0: Yeah, that's not it. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> so what do we do with this contradiction? Does that mean that Hazel shouldn't have participated in these structures? Does that mean that like the net outcome of the executive order is bad. I don't think that's true. I think there are all kinds of ways that the work of the executive order furthered the idea of environmental justice in the public imagination, and there were policy decisions that did take that into account. So I'm not saying it wasn't useful or important.
1: It's much better for these federal agencies to have this mandate than to not. Also, I think from a historical standpoint, that representational participation That picture and that journey all the way to the White House and the highest formal office of power is part of why we're telling the story in the first
0: place. But it's clear, after talking to the people who are actually participating, that the type of power that came out of that convening in 91 is way more impactful for the environmental justice movement and for our collective future than what happened in the NEJAC meetings and the common sense meetings and the near decade of federal initiatives that came out of the executive order.
1: And I think from here, we can grab a really valuable lesson for folks doing organizing work or who want to see themselves as a changemaker in their community. Oftentimes, we have this false goal of, quote, being in the room. A seat at the or table. a seat at the table. And although that can be enticing and attractive and have some benefit, Hazel's story and the lessons that Cheryl continues to teach us show that there's a different type of power that needs to be built to transform what actually happens in those rooms and at those tables.
0: Yeah, adjacency to state power doesn't work as a pathway toward liberation.
1: And actually, sometimes that adjacency is welcomed or invited as a tactic to quell resistance and actually maintain power.
0: Through all these contradictions, through all these back-and-forth flights to D.C., throughout the nearly decade that followed, Hazel, and to a growing extent Cheryl, continue to do what they always did, keep doing the work. At the same
1: time that they're engaging with the Clinton-Gore administration and participating in these federal bodies, they're also engaging in that fight against PCBs that we named in the previous episode, as well as building countless programs and projects to build up the capacity and power of the people of the gardens and meet folks' needs.
0: And these initiatives ranged from an asthma emergency mobile unit in 94, to building a low-income home energy assistance program for people in the gardens between 92 and 2000, to co-hosting the Earth Day at Carver Elementary School in 1998 and connecting it to their work around lead abatement, to hosting youth basketball tournaments in 2001 and 2004. Even though PCR was stretched to capacity, they continued to be a fixture in the gardens, doing the work to tangibly transform people's lives.
1: So as our movement mother was experimenting with engaging the highest halls of power from an outside position, one of her favorite children returned to Illinois and found his way to an inside elected position as a state senator.
0: Obama served in the state Senate from 97 to 2005, but didn't return to the gardens until 2004 as part of his campaign to become a U.S. senator.
8: Well, he came back with media. It was Obama's first real experience with urban politics and the problems of the inner city. This is Ardell Gardens, which is uh, a public housing project. Well,
7: he walked the community when the community was almost like 80 percent abandoned. There was Secret Service folks everywhere, you know, and they was telling us that we could continue to stand on our porch or go in the house, you know. And people got a little irate about that because it's like, I pay rent here. He don't live here. You know, he's just a politician. You know, that was the discussion that we had after he left. You know what I mean? But people just watched because we wanted to know what was going on. The next time he came out here with media and secret service, he went up to Our Lady of the Gardens Church and Catholic School. And he met with some of those students that was there. And he promised that once he'd be elected president, he would come back to visit. That never happened.
1: The Obama legacy has expanded and now looms so large, it's easy to forget, and many may not even know, that Barack Obama's rise to prominence on the national political stage was framed through the lens of him being a community organizer.
0: Wait, it wasn't for his sweet left-handed jump shot? Nah. Was it his banging Spotify playlist? Nope. Oh, it must have been his podcast alongside Bruce Springsteen, Renegades Born in the USA.
1: No, that came much later. Okay,
0: thank you for clarifying. (laughs)
1: His 08 presidential campaign heralded him as a champion of grassroots progressive politics.
0: And the experience that they pointed to to make that claim was his time in the gardens and the Calumet region.
1: And this label of community organizer actually became a major talking point and was weaponized at the Republican National Convention as a way to critique or invalidate his credibility.
0: Here are two of the great villains of the early 21st century, Rudy Giuliani and Sarah Palin. He worked as a community organizer. He worked as a community organizer.
5: I guess a small-town mayor is sort of like a community organizer, except that you have actual responsibilities.
8: This is very curious. So they're talking about the three years of work that I did right out of college. Look. Uh, I would argue that doing work in the community to try to create jobs, to bring people together to uh, rejuvenate communities that had fallen on hard times, to set up job training programs in areas that uh, had been hard hit when the steel plants closed, that that's relevant only in understanding uh, where I'm coming from, who I believe in, who I'm fighting for, and why I'm in this race.
0: But while Obama defended his organizer creds on a national scale, Cheryl had no delusions about what an Obama presidency would mean for PCR and the folks in the gardens.
7: I was telling my mama, he overrated. You overrating him, you know? And she didn't vote for him, and that's where the negativity came out. Now, my mother was born in 1935, so she's seen where Black people got murdered for being activists and organizers. So she really felt some kind of way that Barack Obama's going to get killed once he become elected president. So she threw her support behind Hillary because she feared for his life. And she got ostracized as a result of that. Wait a minute. How did Obama say it? Oh, he said she was not a community organizer. She was just an activist.
1: Obama said that.
7: Well, I can't say that Obama said that, but it came out of his camp. She she feared for him. And to learn just recently, maybe last year, when Michelle put in her book, she also feared for his life. She didn't want him to run. And I said, now, ain't that a bitch? Because he ostracized my mother, but his wife was feeling the same way my mother was feeling.
1: So that's significant. Obama left, went to law school, became a state senator, but did not return to all Gardens until he was running for higher office and really used the community as a stage to frame his persona in the political arena.
0: Cheryl's framing of why Hazel didn't support Obama's presidential run makes sense. And we're gonna take her at her word for it. We don't have Hazel here to ask her why she made the choice she made. But even if there was a less loving, caring reason, even if she was resentful of this person who said he was gonna come back and then didn't until it served his political ambitions, That would make sense. That would be an understandable reason to back a different candidate, especially if you had spent the 90s working in relationship to the Clinton administration.
1: We'll get a little bit more into that relationship with the Clintons in the next episode. But what's actually more important for this story and for our learning is what did Barack Obama, this young man who came up in environmental justice movement organizing spaces, do with the power of the executive office as president? During the Obama administration, we saw the beginning of the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, which is one of the most significant occurrences of environmental racism in American history.
0: We showed Cheryl a famous video that honestly we were surprised she hadn't seen before. Flint's recovery is
8: everybody's responsibility. And I'm going to make sure that responsibility is met. That's why I'm here. And I hear you. Uh, can, can I get some water? Come on up there. I want a glass of water. Get a, get a bottle. bottle water. I want a glass of water. Everybody settle down. This is a feisty crowd.
0: For those of you listening who haven't seen the clip, Obama's in a big auditorium in front of probably, what would you say, 500 people? Minimum. And an aide brings him a glass of water, he brings it to his lips, and if you're watching from the front, it looks like he takes a sip of the water. But if you look more closely and you look from the side angle, he doesn't even let the water enter his mouth. He just, like, wets his lips a little bit.
8: I really did need a glass of water. This is not a stunt.
1: So viewing it, this non-stunt stunt, stunt is really disheartening. Actually, it's upsetting, because it's making a mockery of people's pain. And it's not the only time he did it. On that same trip, after this public speech, he had a sit-down roundtable gathering with then-Michigan Governor Rick Snyder, who's the elected official most responsible for the poisoning of the people of Flint through this water crisis. So at that roundtable, Obama is implicitly providing political cover for Snyder, and he pulls the same stunt. He says again, this is not a stunt, ask for a glass of water, all to make the point that if you filter the water, it will be fine.
0: And he doesn't drink it then either. He does the exact same move, just lets it touch his lips— and then puts it to the side. So going back to the speech, right after the stunt, Obama looks a room of Flint residents in the eye and makes light of the harm that lead poisoning can cause for children. If
8: you know that your child may have been exposed and you go to a health clinic, a doctor, a provider, and are working with them, then your child will be fine. You got some lead in your system when you were growing up. You did. You know, I I am sure that somewhere, when I was two years old, I was taking a chip of paint, (laughs) tasting it, and I got some lead. As long as kids are getting good health care, and folks are paying attention, and they're getting a good education, and they have community support, and they're getting some good home training. And they are in a community that is loving and nurturing and thriving.
0: These kids will be fine. We asked Cheryl what her first reaction was in seeing the video.
7: So he insulted the people intelligent and he minimized the harm that Lez does to our children and to the mother. He won for us. He won for Flint. You know, these people is drinking this water every day. These people are bathing in this water every day. And to come to their community and insult their intelligence and didn't declare that a disaster area. When the government in Flint knew that that water was contaminated and was telling their employees not to drink the water. Come on, that's criminal. That just showed his apathy. For that casualty of of a war that government put on those people by killing their kids for a lifetime and killing
0: a kid that is not even born yet. So Obama says that the way that the children of Flint will be okay is if they have communal support as well as access to affordable health care, quality education. And he threw in some home training in there, which is a dog whistle. Absolutely. But the community that he's saying is the pathway to these children being okay was standing in front of him asking and demanding something very specific.
1: Naira Sharif from Flint Rising names what they asked for, a disaster declaration, and how that is different from the state of emergency.
0: Which is what he did declare. What an emergency declaration does is free up federal funds to support the efforts of the state government of Michigan in addressing the crisis. The same government actors who caused the crisis in the first place.
1: The disaster declaration would have put the response in the hands of the federal government and taken that response leadership out of the state's control and therefore made Barack Obama more responsible.
0: This is just one example of how community organizers like Naira and Cheryl interacted with and see the legacy of the Obama presidency. So I'm going to be real with y'all. Even in trying to cut up these clips
1: and tell this part of this story, it's really activating for me. Barack Obama holds a unique space of reverence for Black people, and that reverence is based off the legacy of freedom fighters and movement workers before him, such as Hazel, or even Martin Luther King, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, and so many who have sacrificed their life or livelihood to make more freedom for Black people in this land. So sometimes when I go in barbershops or family members' houses, I may see images of Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Nelson Mandela, and Barack Obama together. And for me, hearing how he impacted Hazel and Cheryl and seeing how he showed up in this moment, it really is a disgrace to that legacy. It actually has served as a way to move people away from striving for this type of freedom, this type of liberatory justice. If he was truly in that legacy and was honoring Hazel's lineage in the way that I think he should have, That certainly would not have been his response in that moment. And the people of Flint would have clean water by now. And so there's a harm that's been done that needs to be addressed and ideally repaired, materially, but also at a level of consciousness for our people.
0: To be real, I don't know what that looks like.
1: We ask Cheryl what she thinks.
0: I want to do a simple hypothetical and then I promise we'll move on. So let's say... You know, he's a big listener of podcasts. He listens to this. He has a, a, a humbling moment. He realizes you're absolutely right. He comes to you hat in hand and he goes, you know, what can I do to repair this harm? What would you say? He can't do it. My mother's dead.
7: It's not to me. It's to her. You had her feeling some kind of way as a result. Ain't nothing he can rectify that because my mother's deceased. He hurt her heart. He just made my heart harder. Ain't shit he could say to me now because, you know, I was that child that was always very protected of my mother and her feelings. And I ain't like nobody disrespecting or, or I felt that they was using her. But to bring you in her house, to sit at her table, to advocate in her community about you and then fear for you, your safety. And you allow your camp to say negative things about my mother. And only because my mother was feeling the same way as your wife. I don't see what he done for my community. My community is still the same way. Matter of fact, even worse under his leadership. He didn't do anything, just like he didn't do anything for those people in Flint. He was just another politician. I'm just gonna leave it like that.
0: There is no happy ending to this part of the story, on the personal level and on a national level. The impact of the decisions that Obama made still reverberate and are impacting communities like the Gardens and like Flint and countless others. Beyond the sadness, there is a valuable lesson to be learned
1: here. Before the Obama presidency, his journey was thought of as the goal. You gradually climb the ladder of power to the highest position available and make changes from within the state. In many ways, that's one of the central premises of the civil rights movement and being able to participate in the American institutional landscape.
0: Yeah, that's part of why EJ organizers like Hazel went through the headache of participating in things like the Common Sense Initiative, Executive Order. The assumption was, if you had access to state power, you'd be able to move the needle and address the needs of your people. I think in this episode, we've shown the nuance and contradictions of that approach. Yes, you can create policy that addresses need, but often, this approach can lead to both personal heartache and destructive co-optation of movement. So with that
1: reality, it's been difficult to measure the wins and losses on a federal level. In the last episode, it was complicated on a local level as well. But what is unquestionable is the example that Hazel set within the environmental justice movement and the, the impact her unwavering love and care had on the people she mothered both in the movement and those closest to her in her community.
0: Beria Hampton works at PCR, but before she was formally involved, she was a neighbor of Hazel and Cheryl. And she talks about the way that Hazel helped her grow.
10: My interactions and memories
0: with Hazel, you would look
10: at Hazel like a big mama. Smiling, but stern, very stern. Grandma, like somebody who you would like to really be under and embrace. You know, always have good conversations and checking in on you. How you doing today? Family oriented. Our community went beyond just being neighbors. We became a community of family we were very much in tune. And at the time I was a a child and, you know, she were uh, doing a lot of campaigns and stuff around environmental justice then. I didn't know what environmental justice actually was. I just really enjoyed being around Hazel because she always had movies going on for the kids, different activities. And in her campaign and things that she was doing, she actually made us a direct involvement. We were the kids who passed out the flyers. I mean, we did it for fun on our behalf, but we were actually fulfilling the mission to get people involved. These are the days when groups of buses used to go to city hall and we would do candlelights, not knowing what was going on, just wanting to be outside because we couldn't come outside a lot. So when you're doing positive stuff, that gets you outside. And working with Ms. Johnson and being around her was like one of the most positive impacts that all the children around had because to us, she had everything.
0: Adela, another PCR staffer who grew up in the gardens, also remembers the profound impact of Hazel's mothering.
10: When I met Hazel Johnson, she was a little older. Just being around her, her presence in general, was powerful. You know, especially coming from the same community that I came from, it was an honor just to be in her presence.
1: So the impact of the mother of environmental justice
0: resonated around the world. But the type of care, nurturing, challenging, and acceptance can be seen most clearly in her relationship with Cheryl as they started to work more closely together overseeing PCR.
7: My mother picked me. And I asked her, ooh, why did she pick me? My kids was maybe teenagers when I asked her that. And she told me I was her worstest child and she had to keep me by her side. So she made me be with her. Uh, it's like, for an example, I used to love to go out and dance and knowing I wasn't old enough to go out and dance, and this one day she told me I couldn't go. So I snuck and went. But we 2 stories We got an upstairs and a downstairs. We had four bedroom apartments. So I unlocked every window in the house, clammed out the window onto the roof and jumped down, went on my girlfriend's house to get dressed. When I came back home, I tested the window downstairs by the door. It was locked. I said, oh, she locked it. <laughs> so that's when i clammed on the roof and finna go on my bedroom window who was sitting there
0: <laughs> just arms crossed waiting <laughs> yeah. ready for you yeah. she said
7: clam your ass right back down <laughs> and she told me that day she said you know what Cheryl? Seems like i can't stop you now man you i'm 15 years old i can't stop you but I'll let you go out anytime you want to, as long as you go to school every day. I said, for real? <laughs> that wasn't hard at all. I went to school every day. I was one of her most problematic kids that was always doing something, getting in trouble. So she had to keep me close by.
1: How did you receive that when she, when she named it as that? She want not lie. <laughs> She was
7: like, <laughs> I right. always got in trouble. Look, I went to school off a of suspension and go back on a suspension when I went back. <laughs> so yeah, I, I agree with it. I was like,
0: oh, you know. You know, the first time we talked, you shared a couple of these like things that your mom would say that you've been carrying with you. And I'm curious, are there any other like quotable sentences, phrases from your mom that you just keep in the back of your mind that you think would also be helpful for people in our audience to hear?
7: No, y'all ain't going to like what I I, I keep it in the back of my mind. Okay, i tell you this. When my mother used to get mad at me, she called me a sack of bitches. <laughs> and I was like, a sack? <laughs> so you ain't calling me one. You ain't calling me two. You ain't calling me three. She calling me a sack of bitches, boy. You know, I think about that. When I'm out of my element sometimes, I was like, okay, sure, you being a sack of bitches.
0: (laughs) Like Dr. Murray said, Hazel is singular, but she isn't unique. There are so many mothers of environmental justice. So many women, femmes, Other caregivers who have poured their energy, their brilliance, their expertise, all they have to give into the struggle for repair. There are also many mothers of the gardens and communities like it. People who, in their own way, model this ethic of care that can make healing possible.
1: And as we're putting this story together, that is the lesson we hope listeners get the most. We're not going through how to run an organizing meeting or how to power map the branches of government. And what we can learn from Hazel, Sheryl, and all of these mothers is it is the intentional politic of nurturing that will repair the damage and create healthy environments for people to live in. Dr. Joy West, another daughter of the gardens, celebrates this legacy of care and the sacrifice it requires.
7: It just happened to be Mother's Day when I was reflecting on all of this. Um, Yesterday, I was at Roseland Hospital and I was just, you know, looking up environmental racism and I was thinking about my mom and I was thinking about my upbringing and I was thinking about all of the things that she wanted for us in our home. I am particularly grateful for the women of the movement, the Hazel Johnsons of the movement that took the time away from her own children, her her own family, to uplift the community so that we can continue to point out the wrongs in our communities and we can grow.
0: Help This Garden Grow is presented by Respair Production and Media, with Elevate and People for Community Recovery. The show is hosted and created by us, Damon Williams and Daniel Kissinger. Our co-executive producers are Sylvia Ewing, Ann Evans, and Cheryl Johnson. Our associate producer is Natalie Frazier. Our editor is Rocio Santos. And our consulting producers are Maurice and Judith from Juneteenth Productions. Special
1: thanks to our creative cabinet, Adela Bass, Olga Batista, Tanisha Harris, Juliana Pino, and Kyra Woods.
0: Our artwork is designed by Ariana Eggleston with additional multimedia support from Davon Clark. Help This Garden
1: Grow was recorded in the Malika Lean Studio at The Breathing Room Space, a movement-building center
0: stewarded by the Let Us Breathe Collective. You can find out more about the work of Respair Production and Media at respairmedia.com, get in tune with Elevate and elevatenp.org, and support the work of PCR at peopleforcommunityrecovery.org.
1: Much love to the people.
0: Peace.